Welcome to Eczema Breakthroughs, brought to you by Global Parents for Eczema Research, or Cheaper. This show features conversations between parents of children with eczema and the world's leading scientists and researchers who study eczema. Global Parents for Eczema Research is an international network of parents that advocates for better treatments and management options for children with eczema. Jeeper is led and comprised of parents of children with eczema and was formed in 2015 to address the critical need for research that answers questions of importance to patients and families. Learn more about Jeeper and subscribe to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Hello and welcome everybody to today's research meetup with Dr. Eric Simpson. I'm Corey Capoza with Global Parents for Eczema Research and I'm glad you could join us today. I'm also really thrilled um, that we're co-hosting today's meetup and podcast with the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance, or PEDRA, and PEDRA's Executive Director, Mike Siegel, will be serving as co-moderator today. With that, I'll just pass it to Mike for a moment to say a few words about PEDRA. Thank you so much, Corey. We are so grateful to have the opportunity to host today's podcast with you and your community. And just to say a few words about PEDRA, we are a, a committed group of clinician scientists pursuing the mission to create, inspire, and sustain research to prevent, treat, and cure childhood skin diseases. This spans all different skin diseases affecting children, and we're very happy to offer educational resources, research support, infrastructure, um, really whatever it takes to help drive the field forward, and certainly count partnerships, organizations like yours uh, as, as very important to us. For anybody interested in learning a little bit more about PEDRA, you can explore our website, which would be at pedraresearch.org. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Mike. I'm so pleased to introduce Dr. Eric Simpson. He is Professor of Dermatology and Director of Clinical Research at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Simpson is an internationally recognized expert on eczema and has conducted pioneering research that has led to the development of new treatments, including the new biologic Dupixent. I've gotten to know Dr. Simpson through his work with the Harmonizing Outcome Measures in Eczema Work, or HOME, which is a group of patients, providers, and stakeholders whose mission is to improve the quality of eczema research to better suit the needs of patients and policymakers. Through that work, I've run into him at meetings in various places around the globe, and in various states of jet lag. And one thing that's always impressed me about him is his ability to synthesize and communicate really complex information in a way that's understandable to a range of audiences, even while jet lag. So Dr. Simpson, welcome to this meetup and podcast, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. If I, uh, you know, if I heard just Keeper was asking, I'd say yes. And if I heard Pedro was asking, I'd say yes. So to have both of you all on the phone is a, it's a real honor for me. So I really respect both of your organizations. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that. And so I'll now pass the mic to Pedro to get us started. Thank you, Corey. And, and Dr. Simpson, I'd like to express my gratitude to you as well for, for joining us and certainly for your commitment to both of our organizations. And with the first question, I'd kind of like to touch on where both of our groups are coming from. So uh, GPER being a parent group and PEDRA being a research alliance committed to serving children. I'd love to kick things off asking, you know, what interests you about eczema and more specifically why pediatric eczema might be particularly interesting as we continue to explore more and learn more about this disease? Sure, thanks. I, um, you know, I went to medical school to try to help people and, and uh, alleviate suffering. And I think seeing patients with and kiddos with really severe disease uh, with few 
few options. You know, we're talking 20 years ago uh, when I was introduced to, to these, pa these patients. Kind of sparked my interest to try to think about disease prevention. So uh, that led me naturally to, to children, uh, to the very onset of the disease, uh, and thinking about how we can prevent this disease so we don't even have to treat it at some point, which is going to be my aspirational goal probably for my whole career. Thank you for that. So this, this, this one is going to take a while, and I apologize for the uh, complexity of the question, but for years, parents and children with moderate to severe eczema were, were really frustrated by a lack of treatment options. And I remember when my son was especially young, um, we were really having trouble controlling his eczema, but it seemed uh, every time we brought him back, it was the same answer, try this steroid or this topical steroid, this topical steroid, or this topical steroid, and if that doesn't work, this topical steroid. So we just didn't have a lot of options. And now, after a long drought, we're suddenly experiencing a kind of downpour in new treatments, um, especially for moderate to severe eczema. But for parents and patients, it's really confusing, and it's hard to figure out what's what, especially given the utterly unpronounceable names that a lot of these treatments have, with MABs and MIBs at the end. And we, we, I think we struggle, a lot of us, to compare the options and navigate um, decision-making around treatments, especially as we look to so many new treatments coming. So my question is, this is, a, this is a big ask, but can you help us understand what's coming and maybe offer a framework or some guideposts for how we can make sense of the categories of options that are in the pipeline? And a follow-up on that is, how should parents think about evaluating these new treatments and go about choosing among them? The way I think you can break it down is, is in two, just two big buckets. Like, my child is suitable for topical treatment, whether it's topical steroids, topical calcineurin inhibitors, crisoboral. Um, can my child be well controlled on a safe level of topical therapy? And, uh, and the reason why that would be ideal for any patient is because you have minimal risk to systemic side effects, right? So anytime you move to a systemic treatment, and when I mean systemic treatment, I mean filter shots. And so anytime you start doing that, you kind of start getting a little bit more serious about, you know, you're changing biology from the inside out. So that's, you know, after prevention, if you can't prevent the disease, that's the next ideal situation. Your kiddo can be controlled topically with safe topical therapy. When someone's not adequately controlled on topical therapy, they are a candidate for light treatment, pills, or shots. And so I think that's the first step is, you know, where, where do you lie? Do you lie in the topical group or do you lie in the, in the pill, shot, light treatment group? Thanks. That's helpful. So what you're saying is that if you can, you should stay in this realm of topical treatments. And if you obtain control of symptoms that way, you can kind of ignore this other stuff, the pills, shots, light therapy, et cetera. I think that's helpful to think of things that way. Okay, so now talking about pills or shots, what's, how would I think about this? How would I break it up more? But I think um, you can think about this as either a pill or a shot. That would be your first algorithm, uh, potentially. The shots are, I would think about them as more targeted treatments. Um, the reason why medications come in a shot is because they're um, genetically engineered proteins that can target one chemical or two chemicals, for example. 
And just like any other protein, if you took it by mouth, your body would, your digestive system, even starting in the mouth, would start digesting the protein and the drug would never get absorbed. So that's why these, these are really highly engineered, targeted therapies that have to be injected. And so I would think about shots are targeted, they only block one chemical or two chemicals. And so in general, they're going to have fewer side effects. I, I don't think that's too broad of a statement. And the side effects will only be based on that one chemical that you're blocking. And I'll just tell you the state of play right now for shots, Dupixent or Dupilumab is the gold standard. It blocks interleukin-4 and interleukin-13. These are two, these are chemicals that your immune system uses to uh, communicate. And they're way too high in atopic dermatitis. And they're way too high in asthma. And that's why it works. It, it doesn't necessarily block it completely, but it puts it back to about normal levels and can make your inflammation, your itch, much, much better. And there's no lab test required because it doesn't have any effects on your liver, your blood count, your kidneys. It's a shot under the skin every two weeks, kind of like an insulin shot, uh, to kind of correct the imbalance of your, of, of your immune chemicals that we found to be abnormal in atopic dermatitis. What started this... Um, deluge of new therapies. So what Corey mentioned was that there's a lot of new therapies. So Dupilumab was the first one. There's, there are no other ones yet approved by the FDA, but there's a whole host of them coming. So how can we prepare you as a parent to navigate all of these new therapies that can be overwhelming? And so what we'll talk about today are therapies that are in the last phase of development. So that's called phase three. And when, when things are in phase three, you know they've already been through lots of animal testing, lots of basic science testing. They've been through hundreds of humans, both uh, with disease and normal volunteers. And you know that the company has put in hundreds of millions of dollars if they've made it to phase three, the last phase of research. Because after phase three, if that's positive, it goes to FDA approval. Um, I'll mention kind of what I, what I think are the most exciting therapies that are actually in phase three or a finished phase three. Other shots that are in development that are in phase three are not blocked both interleukin-4 and interleukin-13, but they block only interleukin-13. And so companies are trying to find different ways to block the same pathway. What chemical does it block? Does it block IL-13? You kind of impress your friends, or does it block IL-4? Or does it block IL? Uh, and when I say IL, it's a short for interleukin. Uh, there's one more drug that's in phase three that blocks interleukin 31, and that's a itch, an itch chemical. Um, and so different companies are picking different targets, but really, Dupixent has been the gold standard so far. So that's the state of play right now. There's going to be a couple more drugs that block interleukin 13 uh, that are going to be very similar safety profile to to Dupixent. So I think it'll be kind of a conversation with your dermatologist, like how would these be, would these be useful for me over Dupixent? What are the, what are the risks and benefits? And I can tell you they're going to be very similar, I think. So that'll be kind of a difficult discussion, uh, but with no wrong answer. Thank you for that overview. One thing that's interesting to me is the association between IL-4 and some of the eye issues that patients are seeing on Dupixent and some hypothesis that perhaps there's some relationship between IL-4 and what's going on with the eyes. Um, right. So that it may ultimately prove to be a case for just doing IL-13, but we shall see. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll, I'll give you a little hint on that since I know some of the public data 
what Corey's mentioning is that conjunctivitis or, or redness of the of the eyes, like irritation. Um, it's not a serious consequence of dupixent therapy, but it's a nuisance for 20% of people or so. And so since dupixent blocks interleukin-4 and 13, these other drugs that are blocking only interleukin-13, the question is, are they going to lose this problem? Because it's one of the few Achilles heels that dupixent can have and one of the few nuisance side effects. But the, the adverse event profile for the interleukin-13 only blockers are kind of looking similar to dupixent, unfortunately, and they are seeing a slight conjunctivitis signal in the phase two studies. But it looks like blocking IL-13 alone also has some of this conjunctivitis signal, unfortunately. Got it. Okay. Well, dead end on that one. Uh, so let me let you finish your overview of the oral medications, and then we've got three questions here in the pipeline for you. Okay. We don't have anything approved right now um, that's recommended by guidelines for the treatment of atopic dermatitis from a pill perspective. The most excitement right now, I would say, is in the JAK inhibitors, J-A-K. Well, companies have found a way that you can make a really small molecule and specifically block these little JAK molecules. And they're small, so they have to go through the cell membrane. And, and, and they're so small, they're not proteins, they're just chemicals. And so you can take them by mouth, which is the nice thing. You can just once-a-day pill. The, the difference between these JAK inhibitors and immune suppressants, like traditional immune suppressants, is that they're more targeted. Uh, well, let me just give you an example. Steroids turn off all your immune signals, like or many, many of your immune signals. You can design JAK inhibitors to only turn off four immune signals or five immune signals. And so I would say think about these JAK inhibitors as, as blocking more signals, but in a safe manner and not as many as traditional immune suppressants. And the other, other thing I'd say about JAKs as a whole is the safety profile is not going to be as good as the biologics, the, the shots, because they don't target just one thing. They target a few different cytokines, a few different of these chemical messengers. And so they are going to have a slight immune suppressing effect, and it's really dose-related. And so that's what the studies are going on right now. And, uh, you know, we talked about the different phases. There's three pills in phase three that are looking really promising in terms of effects. Uh, and the trick is picking just the right dose so you get the best benefit without the side effects. But I can tell you, at the doses that are being looked at, there are going to be some side effects to think about and probably some blood tests involved. A little bit more monitoring, a little bit more risk is going to be involved. Now, what do you get for that risk? You do get extremely rapid improvement of eczema, like more rapid than the shots in general. And it's within like, it's within 12 hours that, that patients feel a difference, especially on itch. You'll get the benefit of a pill. You'll have rapid reduction in your itch and in your eczema. And so that those are the two biggest benefits. There'll be three coming out that you'll have to think about for your kiddo or for your, uh, or as a adult patient. Um, and they'll have different levels of effectiveness uh, and probably the least effective one will be, the, will, will be the safest. So there'll be this kind of give and take, you know, no free lunch kind of thing that you can work through with your dermatologist about what, what's right for you. Great. So it sounds like we'll need to consider as patients and caregivers a bunch of trade-offs. Are we willing to go the route of a shot or a pill 
how much do we care about having to do additional blood tests in the case with the pills? And also, what dose to go for, considering the trade-offs between relief of symptoms and side effects? So those are all, I think, really important questions. Uh, my question is, Depixent being the first biologic for AD, long-term effects of this medication are not available yet, um, as you've just explained a bit. But can you tell us information that you might have learned about other biologics in general for other diseases, similarly to what you just mentioned about rheumatoid arthritis? I am a parent. Uh, my son has uh, severe eczema. I'm sorry to hear that, and thank you for the question. So, um, you know, I have to say from the psoriasis experience, which is about 15 years ahead of eczema in terms of biologics availability, um, some, of, some of the even the most scary-looking package inserts for, the, um, for some of those drugs, over the last 15 years, um, you know, there's always rare adverse events, kind of that, that um, you can't predict and that you, you, know, you can never see in trials, but I can tell you that every single one of those 10 biologics are still, or pretty much, maybe there's one off the market and wasn't necessarily for, one of them was for safety. Um, but 10 biologics that have been out for over 15 years, they're, they're, they're still the gold standard for treatment for severe psoriasis. Um, and, and those are chemicals in psoriasis that are blocked that I would argue are more important to normal immune responses potentially than, than Dupixin. You know, I've had patients on it for over five years now, uh, and I know the data up to four years of treatment, and there just seems to be nothing emerging uh, of a signal to make me concerned about something happening over the following five years. You know, from making that risk benefit and, and, the, and the impact that the disease has on patients, I think it's, it's a pretty nice calculation at this point. Thank you. Corey, do you mind if I, if I answer Maria's question at the top real quick? You do, yeah. Thank you. So the question is, how do you deal with parents and patients who fear systemic therapy but have severe AD? You know, it's hard for Maria and myself sometimes going into a room, seeing a kid with severe AD, um, and parents are um, reluctant to be more aggressive. Like they're, they're, you know, using topicals, and you feel like the only way to um, help them is with systemic therapy. And I have to take a step back. My goal is to kind of help the family do what they feel is right. And I cannot impose my views on them. And so I really feel like this is something that they have to buy into. And so I just have to weigh the risks and benefits and make, make it very clear. And, and um, if they decide not to do it, that's not a failure on you. You know, that's their choice. That's their right. The parents aren't going to be happy unless they feel equal part of the team. And so you're never going to be able to force anybody. But the, the way you can help balance that is by understanding and relaying that there's a risk to not treating your kid. Poor sleep, it's potential development issues, um, and just a few days of poor sleep can kind of affect how you, how you develop your risk for ADHD, et cetera, et cetera. I think it is helpful to kind of balance like, and bring that forward into the discussion to frame like why are we even interested in treating the eggs. So I, try to, I just try to stay non-judgmental and develop rapport and, and let it play out. Thank you. A question here from a parent, a deeper parent uh, from Texas. Two-part question. Have people been able to come off Dupixent and remain stable? And related to that, can the body create antibodies to Dupixent if you take a break? Yeah, it's my home state, so hi. If you, I'll answer the second one. So if you, if you do increase the frequency too much, there's a theoretical risk 
Like if you go to every eight weeks, for example, there's a theoretical risk you can start develop. Your immune system can wake up and start developing your own antibodies against the drug. It hasn't been clearly defined yet or seen, um, but that is a risk that we've seen in the psoriasis biologics. So that's the only re that's the only downside of going to every four weeks or every eight weeks once the disease is well controlled. Your question really is: Does do Pixin cure the disease? Which is an exciting concept. And I can tell you from the one official study that we did at 16 weeks, we re-randomized people who were clear, almost clear, to no drug. On average, it started coming back. So it's not a cure. It does slowly come back. But that was only that study was only 16 weeks of treatment where, you know, we have patients on it for a year at every two weeks, and they're completely clear for several months. Uh, those are the patients who, I mean, who do well going to every four weeks, let's say, or every six weeks. Um, and I've had some patients able to come off the drug. Now, did they have zero eczema afterwards? No. But, you know, kids, kids can grow out of it. So I do think it's worth it after a year or two potentially to start reducing frequency to see if the natural course of their disease is going to go away is that it's going to go away. And so I think it's a possibility. I wouldn't do it too early, though. I would, I would have controlled disease for a year or so before you start thinking about coming off. Um, I know you said with Dupixent there is approximately 20% um, side effects, conjunctivitis, and a few others. For those that are experiencing those side effects, is there any potential for handling those or treating those differently? <laughs> No, I'm sure it's a good question, and I would, I would, when you look at, um, you know, all these busy tables of like adverse events and all that, look at, you know, how many require discontinuation of the drug. You know, that tells you it could probably be controlled if they get it. And mm -hmm. so, for conjunctivitis, like in the original studies, there's only uh, like one person who discontinued because of the eyes. I've had probably over 300 patients on the drug, and I've, I've discontinued maybe just two patients because of the conjunctivitis was too annoying. Um, and yet there are, I, once I have a patient who develops any new eye symptoms on Dupixin, I just use a, an ophthalmologist, the same ophthalmologist who's familiar with this side effect. And it's actually readily treatable um, with uh, various topical therapies and topical anti-inflammatory therapies. And then the weird thing is the majority, the vast majority of patients, it just goes away. And it never comes back. It's just the weirdest thing, and it's different for every patient. Uh, and we don't we don't know enough about it, but yes, it can be controlled. Um, you know, even and you can stay on doobie, and it'll go away even on doobie. With the last question for today, Dr. Simpson, I'd like to kind of wrap in a few of the concepts you've touched on throughout today's conversation. And so broadly, if you could speak to what you see as the future of eczema treatment, I mean, are we are we talking about things like prevention? Are we talking realistically about things like a cure? And while this is an open-ended question, I realize that, can you speak a little perhaps to what are some of the research steps that have to happen between now and then? I mean, is there still more discovery that needs to take place? Do we need to focus more on clinical research to ultimately get us to what we think is the, the end-all be-all um, result uh, in terms of treating eczema in the future? Yeah, I think it's I think it's both. Uh, we didn't talk about prevention much today, which um, I'd be happy to talk about some someday. Um, um, I think the I think continuing to fund research that focuses on prevention and cure, and that takes 
both funding for clinical trials, either through NIH or through pharma, uh, and also funding for discovery. Um, the more we understand about the disease, we, I mean, there's so many unknowns that we still do not understand. Um, and with the goal of being a cure, and I think potential cures of the disease once it started. Um, so I think, you know, both, both prevention and therapy is going to be important. I think the, where we're going is a personalized approach. So I think um, your situation, your child's eczema, is it with asthma? Is it with hay fever? Um, do you have a family history? I think we're going to understand how genetically patients are different and how their immune systems are different. And we can tailor a therapy uh, for that particular patient that's going to give them the highest effectiveness and the least amount of side effects. So we're moving to, to more personalized medicine, as they say. Um, and the more options we have, the more able we'll be able to tailor it for that perfect patient. Uh, and so I think you'll see a lot of information coming out over the next few years about how, how to identify those markers. You know, we call them biomarkers of what type of patient, you know, can we do a little skin prick test or can we do a blood test to tell us, okay, you would be much better off with a jack inhibitor than to fix it or vice versa, or you'd be much better off blocking X, Y, or Z, uh, and that will give you a better chance for a cure. And so this personalized medicine approach, this biomarker and understanding this, uh, all the different types of atopic dermatitis, uh, I think is where the future is headed. Terrific. On that hopeful note, please join me in thanking Dr. Simpson for his time today and a special thanks to the Pedra for co-hosting with us. Thank you so much. Thanks to everybody on the line, Dr. Simpson. Uh, much appreciated. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your time, Dr. Simpson. This was great. You've been listening to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. To learn more and join Global Parents for Eczema Research or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit us at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast.